Hello everybody, Aldous Assyrian back after uh, about two and a half months of not really doing much of anything podcast wise because it's been pretty much the craziest two, three months of my life. But I did manage to get some reading done uh, in preparation to go on the Art of Darkness podcast dealing with the life and work of sci-fi author and postmodern prophet Philip K. Dick. And that episode may or may not be out by the time I get done with this recording. Um, I was thinking that uh, you all would benefit from some of the reading I've done, and maybe I'll get a chance to say here what I was not able to there. Um, PKD is uh, probably in the top handful of authors in terms of influencing me uh, and this podcast. I think the Book of Valis was a major rabbit hole book for me, um, chock full of all kinds of esoteric material although the book is itself not an esoteric book for reasons that I explained on a Twitter thread recently. But, um, you know, it deals with everything from uh, Gnostic Christianity to Platonism and pre-Socratic philosophy, uh, Dogon myth, uh, Grail lore, and so on. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, that kind of uh, smorgasbord of high weirdness and arcana uh, was really um, kind of an intoxicating brew for me. Um, and ever since I read that book, I probably go through a, a small, you know, Philip K. Dick craze every five years or so. I'll go back and I'll reread. Um, some books I've already read of his, and then add, um, you know, at least one more, if not a couple. Uh, he has a very daunting bibliography, though. I think that is one challenge um, with him. He doesn't have any book that is just a doorstop of a novel, um, although some of his books, like Vallis, for instance, um, can be quite complex, even at their you know, fairly short length. He rarely, if ever, has a book that goes over 300 pages. Um, but on the other hand, um, he has 44 some odd novels uh, published, over 130 short stories. I'd say I've probably read about a third of this published output, maybe a little bit more after this uh, recent spate of um of pkd reading now a lot of that is pot boilers and recycled material that he did for money there's probably no other major author that um has as many pot boiler type works um although you know the thing the strange charm of pkd is uh, there's always something that's unique and weird and valuable no matter how pulpy the work is and there's always something kind of 
flawed and not quite coming together no matter how much of a masterpiece the book is too. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do in this uh, research uh, period that I've just had is I wanted to get a handle on the bibliography in terms of understanding um, what a lot of the books that I haven't read are about and kind of the order that they came in and get an idea of the sort of the structure of his career, um, which I do have a bit of a better understanding now um, without having to go through and read all, you know, a dozen and, you know, however many books it's going to take to do that. Um, so there's a couple of resources that I've found that you may uh, want to avail yourselves of as well. Uh, podcast called Dickheads. It's probably the most comprehensive um, PKD-related show uh, in podcast form. It's by a group of guys who are themselves working science fiction writers. So they bring that perspective to his work, and they, they've been systematically going through and reading all of the PKD books, um, which is quite a project. And they've they've done quite a few. They're all the way up to, um, by this point, I think, Flow My Tears, the policeman said. So they're into the 70s work. Um, so there's a lot to go through there, and they cover each of the books, and like I said, they bring a working writer's perspective, and I find that interesting particularly they get into um like publishing history details his relationship with editors uh, especially don wolheim who has uh, ace books um, published most of pkd's early work um, certainly without him there would have been he would not have had a career at all most of the early books were published as ace doubles which means that uh, they were packaged together with one other book, usually some disposable sci-fi uh, space opera or something along those lines. I'm just kind of imagining picking up, you know, some, some you're expecting some pulp uh, space opera and you, you get something like Eye in the Sky or Time Out of Joint. I mean, that's pretty crazy. My reservation with this podcast is something having to do with contemporary nerd culture that sort of irks me. Um, it's kind of a basic hostility or something. It's kind of a knee-jerk resentment towards anything high culture. Um, these guys read essentially for plot. And not that they never get into like the what the work is trying to say, but there's not a deep there's not a deep close reading of what some of the stranger elements and the deeper like deep psychology elements that Dick is working into his material, and especially the theological ideas that he works with. I've come to reflect that PKD has two major audiences that he's been popular with that that actually miss out on a huge portion of his work, or they're not prepared to address the the seriousness of his religious vision. Um, and that's sci-fi fans and postmodernists. Um, they both miss the, you know, what the, the, the hermetic Christianity that he increasingly gets into, um, which I think he's quite serious about. Um, and like I said, there's, there's often a dismissal of things that show up in Dick's work that are actually reference, you know, uh, classical music or poetry or things like that um, 
And one of the things that I like about PKD is he's one of these authors that utilizes the high and the low, culturally speaking, and completely avoids the middle brow entirely. And he's able to do that in a way that is completely genuine. Like he genuinely likes, you know, pulp science fiction with aliens and ray guns and whatnot. He, he likes A.E. Van Vogt, and he also likes James Joyce and Marcel Proust. And each of those elements, as I see it, are completely authentic in his work. Um, he's authentically highbrow and authentically lowbrow at the same time. Um, some of his uh, acolytes are kind of a little bit more veering toward the middle brow, quite frankly, um, like Jonathan Lethem. I think Jonathan Lethem is a good writer, but the weird elements of Lethem's fiction feel a little forced to me. Um, and he rarely, well, never ventures into territory that uh, wouldn't pass muster on, you know, the New Yorker or NPR or our official channels of culture today. But anyway, that's maybe a quibble. It's, a, it's basically an entertaining show. Um, it's also been going through a website called The World Dick Made, um, which is pretty useful as well because um, it just has a list of the all, all of the novels and all of the short stories. Um, and you can go through them chronologically or alphabetically. And they, the novels have a plot synopsis plus an evaluation. The short stories mostly just have a short plot synopsis. So if you go through that, there's so much material, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to remember everything, what, what all was in what books, but you tend to get an idea of thematically the kind of things that PKD tended to be writing about in the 50s versus the 60s and the 70s. So I have a pretty good notion of uh, the development of his career at this point, what was different about um, his work. Obviously the religious experiences and the religious ideas come to dominate the work toward the end. Um, in the 1950s, it's interesting because some of that stuff is there, but it's very latent. Um, and some of his attitudes are about religion are quite different. He became very consciously Christian, as you probably know. Um, and some of the books, like Eye in the Sky, there's kind of the typical secular liberal's attitude toward uh, believing Christians as basically being these, like, you know, hoity-toity, very judgmental people. There's a character in, a, in the book that's like that. Or these kind of obsessive, neurotic, you know, um, self-flagellating type of people. Um, nevertheless, and I'm referencing the book Eye in the Sky, um, there is a strong interest in religion and in some of the more esoteric dimensions of religion too. For instance, like the religious crazy person in, in the eye in the sky uh, involves the book, the book involves uh, a bunch of people who are involved in a accident with a particle accelerator. And, you know, that's just kind of a, a justification for what follows, which is that it plunges them successfully into completely subjective worlds created by one of the characters that is there and one of the worlds um that you get the where you get the titular eye in the sky is uh you know this omnipresent surveillant judging god um but he's called tetragrammaton um in that 
Um, and there's some elements that's taken from, I think, Baha'i. I don't know much about that religion. Um, and then another of his books, Cosmic Puppets, takes um, Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainu from Zoroastrianism and has them in locked in this dualistic showdown. Um, so you can see he had an interest in religion from the beginning, um, but definitely not in the obsessive way that he would later. Also went through a couple of books that are critical surveys of Dick's uh, output. Um, one by a critic that I uh, was not previously familiar with named Umberto Rossi. Uh, he wrote a book called The Twisted Worlds of Philip K. Dick. Uh, and there's a subtitle there, but I forget what it is. But he deals with the idea of what he calls ontological uncertainty, that theme um, throughout the books. And he doesn't go through all of the books, just uh, ones that are particularly relevant to that theme. But it's, uh, it's obviously one of his more pro prominent themes, um, ontological uncertainty being uh, how, you know, that idea of reality breakdown and not knowing what is real. Um, a lot of the books, actually after reading that, I realized how many of his books kind of hinge on certain ambiguities as to what actually is going on in the book. Um, Ubik, for instance, when you get to the end of it, it has this ending that makes you question everything that had come before. And it, it's the kind of ending that sort of feels right, but you're not sure. It, it's very difficult to make sense logically of how that is supposed to work. Um, and then two, um, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, just has a really strong ambiguity as to what even happened in the book. Um, but the Rossi book is pretty good. It's kind of dry. Um, it's academic, not in that sense of the like just jargon clotted prose that you often get with some of the more uh, theory influenced um works of criticism, but just in the sense that he has like zero concern with having his own sort of expressive style. Um, so the book is not like a great joy to, to read the prose. It's just, it's really just a matter of the insights that you get out of it. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, when you read a lot of academic works that really try to sound like they're saying something, but they really aren't. They're just referencing a bunch of prior theorists and trying to mash them together somehow and trying to like cite everyone who has ever written on the same sort of topic. And then at the end, you're not really sure what you got out of all of that. Um, it's actually this, this kind of book is refreshingly clear and I wish there were more uh, very practical works of criticism like that, even if they're not like the most exciting books to, to read in terms of the prose. Um, another one that I read is, um, I think I'd recommend this to anyone with an interest in PKD, which is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Novels of Philip K. Dick. Uh, again, a very dry, kind of analytic uh, book for the most part. Kim Stanley Robinson is himself a science fiction writer. Uh, I haven't read him, but uh, my understanding is that his his approach is actually like complete opposite of PKD in a way. So it's sort of weird that he, um, and this book, by the way, I think was a PhD thesis. So 
Um, but that's what makes it interesting. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson is basically like a meat and potatoes realist, more or less, and he kind of belongs to that tradition of science fiction, like needing to make logical sense all the time. You know, he's not a surrealist or a pataphysician the way that um, PKD could be thought of as. Um, nevertheless, he has like a lot of good insights as to what what's going on. So, uh, but one thing about him is he's not really. You know, being more of a realist, he's not interested so much in that ontological uncertainty or the the, the, the reality breakdown that frequently happens. He's not interested in the th theology either, um, but he has a good sense of... Uh, so what his real interest in with, with PKD is how Dick appropriates the images and tropes of the golden age of sci-fi or, or all the earlier iterations of sci-fi before he came along um, and repurposes them for um, his own symbolism and especially for a social critique. So that's kind of the thrust of what he's looking at there. He also has a really great analysis of how the character structures, uh, what does he call it? I think he calls it a character system, works in most Philip K. Dick novels. For instance, he cites something that was very obvious once he said it, but I had never really thought about this. As very often in Philip K. Dick, you have a little protagonist and a big protagonist. So the little protagonist is your, uh, you know, your your small guy, your your guy who's poor. You know, he's middle management at best. If he's not employed, uh, if he's not unemployed, he's worried about losing his job. He's got a terrible marriage, henpecked by his wife. You know, you get the drift. Um, and then you have your big protagonist who is uh, rich and powerful. Um, Palmer Eldritch from Three Stigmata or Felix Buckman from Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Um, actually, Flow My Tears is kind of a, a variation. So once you get like what the basic system is, you can get these variations where Flow My Tears doesn't really it has like the dual protagonist but they don't so like Jason Taverner is the other protagonist and he is not in the beginning the little protagonist because he's like one of the most famous people in the world but then through this reversal where he slips into this other reality where nobody knows who he is he's plunged into the position of the little protagonist um, but anyway one of his ideas which I think is uh, interesting is that uh, you know Dick's work a lot of his novels are really based on these character system relations so that the strongest of his books have, and he literally diagrams this at, at, uh, at a certain point, um, they have these, they, they gather their effect cumulatively not through having like the most singular memorable characters but through having these relations between a handful of characters that whatever happens gathers its meaning through its effect on multiple characters and that the weakest dick books are the ones that have no, they, they focus very much in on one particular um, character or, or a very few set of characters um, and then also the ones that try to have too many characters i think the simulacra is a one example which has something like you know 40 major character not major but 40 um, 
characters. Um, and this, by the way, is in a barely over 200-page novel. It's not like it's a Tolstoy novel. Um, it just can't bear that many characters. So he kind of goes wrong by overstuffing it with characters or by concentrating on a, a singular character who can't really bear the weight of the kind of metaphysical craziness that Dick is, is throwing at them. So those two books, I think, are pretty good complements to one another. Now, before I get into uh, the fiction itself, uh, I want to just back up and talk about how I got into PKD in the first place. This is a common question. Uh, where does one start with uh, an oeuvre, this massive and uh, the answer is usually do androids dream of electric sheep um, and that's because of the movie Blade Runner and that's probably always going to be the case because uh, it's the best overall PKD adaptation movie most famous um, and that's for better or worse how people tend to get into books is via the movies um, this was uh, I didn't know this until recently, but Dick's first novel, Solar Lottery, which nobody would claim is in the top five or maybe even ten of his best novels, was his best-selling book, and that was not even as a standalone version, but in the ace-double version where it was packaged with, with another novel. Um, this was his best-selling book throughout his lifetime until the release of the Androids Blade Runner film tie-in in the early 80s, um, which I believe is the very same <clears throat> copy of the book that I first picked up. Um, but I actually did not come to PKD because of Blade Runner. Uh, this was when I was in high school and I hadn't seen Blade Runner at the time um, I came to him via being a fan of the band Sonic Youth because they had this album called Sister, which is uh, it's probably a stretch to call it a concept album, um, but it's it's kind of full of references to PKD and his uh, mental health issues and his uh, the the titular sister is his sister Jane. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and of course, the first book I picked up was uh, that version of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep with the, well, I mean, the title as presented is Blade Runner in big red letters um, with the Android subtitle at the very, at the bottom in much smaller script. Um, I bought this from, a, I think it was a B. Dalton bookseller in the mall this was in the 90s when those were still a thing uh, and it was the only PKD novel they had there so that's the one I got um, and later I saw the movie Blade Runner and so I think a lot of people's experience of that novel is based on their perceptions of the film and they're quite different tonally and the book has some elements that are cut out of it that um, are very vital to what the book is about. Um, obviously, the uh, religion of Mercerism 
which is essentially Christianity and particularly Christianity as it was in the early days when it was uh, an outlawed sort of religion, but that was growing in popularity in the, under the Roman Empire. This fits into PKD's whole mythology, if, if it is a mythology and not just reality of the modern world in the United States as the Roman Empire, which never ended. In fact, history never uh, developed beyond 70 AD. It was actually frozen in time. And what we had was a simulacra, a simulacrum that uh, we had actually moved on from that moment. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. Uh, this whole That whole mythos developed in the 70s. And uh, I think Androids was from 68, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he has some books which kind of develop these ideas that will later happen to him experientially. So Androids is one, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, which wasn't published until 74, um, but I believe he had a draft of it as early as 1970. And he had this period in the early 70s where he wasn't really writing much in terms of fiction. He was just doing a lot of speed and hanging out with, uh, with his speed freak friends. But anyway, um, my first attempt at reading Dick actually failed. I mean, I was a pretty naive, inexperienced reader of contemporary fiction at the time. But I was reading some other stuff that was kind of challenging um, along similar lines. I was really into Burroughs at the time. I really liked Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, which has some, a lot of playful linguistic things going on. It's also dystopian sci-fi. Um, so you'd think that would have been really up my alley, <clears throat> but for whatever reason, it just kind of didn't jibe with me. Um, I maybe coming from like the Sonic Youth thing, I maybe expected something a little different, a little more. I going back to the books of his that I've read, I'd say maybe something like Ubik would have been that kind of like crazy you know, surrealistic or pataphysical type of thing. Maybe that was something I was expecting at the time. But for whatever reason, I set it aside. And then a little bit later, <clears throat> after high school, when I was kind of venturing out on my own, got my first apartment and uh, spent a lot of time at the library, because that's what I do, um, I decided to have another go. And this library had bunch of the 90s uh, vintage editions with those very distinctive uh, covers um, and I picked up Vallis and that book really delivered I was like okay okay I get it now I get the why the the cult um, so it was like I mentioned before major kind of rabbit hole gateway kind of book that got me into all these strange areas of intellectual interest, which probably helped spur uh, what I'm doing today with the Forest of Symbols. Um, so that, that made me a solid Philip K. Dick fan, Vallis. Um, and I recently reread this one. And I there was a, another rereading that I did a couple years, two or three years, I think, after my initial one. And what happened with the rereadings is kind of interesting because the first thing 
when I first read it, it was kind of just like my mind was blown by all the crazy stuff that he was talking about. Um, and then on the subsequent reading, some of the novelty had kind of worn off and what I perceived was a book that was a lot sadder than I had remembered, although obviously I knew it dealt in things like suicide and depression and madness and, and all these things. Um, but I guess it didn't really register just the, the existential weight that's there. But this is actually the case with a lot of Philip K. Dick novels when you read them is that there's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain zaniness and wildness in terms of the ideas that's very exciting that's actually mixed with this heavy heavy sense of loneliness and despair at the human condition um, and this is true of Ubik too, which I, I also recently reread. Um, no different there. So maybe, you know, at his best, PKD has both of these things going on. But anyway, that second rereading was is now like nearly 10 years in the past. So I was a little worried that uh, this one wouldn't hold up very well. Um, and to my pleasant surprise, uh, it actually did. I really enjoyed this rereading. Of course, I picked up a whole bunch of things that I hadn't really picked up on before. And it's just such a rich novel in terms of its ideas. It's pitch perfect in terms of its emotions. That sense of intellectual excitement and delving into the esoteric and the weird, high weirdness and so on. Um, you know, the chunks of the exegesis that he kind of fits in there, the strange sci-fi film of, uh, that is the, the film within the book that is called Valis um, is still uh, kind of uncanny um, and strange and a very uh, interesting way, you know, mixed with a very authentic sense of the experience of mental illness, you know. And not only have I read a lot more at this point in my life, I've actually uh, also experienced a lot more authentic uh, depression and other mental health related issues. So the book rang very true to me. So I'd say that one holds up. And then uh, initially, in my initial reading of Valis, I followed it up with a scanner darkly, which is what I also did uh, this time around. And I'm happy to report that scanner holds up extremely well also. Um, in terms of the development of the characters and kind of the arc of the story, you know, PKD's um, denouements can be disappointing they kind of i think ubik ubik is one of the few with a very notable memorable uh ending that is puzzling but it's not something that just sort of trails off and scanner could be accused of just kind of like taking a left turn and kind of you know disappearing into the ether um but actually it's quite fitting because we're talking about drugs 
and the the uh, dissolution dissolution of um, the identity, uh, the integrity of, of consciousness. Um, so if you don't know, uh, Scanner Darkly is a really mildly science fictional account of Dick's years as a speed freak in the post-60s California counterculture. Um, so the book's about taking a lot of drugs and hanging out with dopers. Uh, and there's a lot of really funny um, kind of paranoid, uh, methed out uh, conversations in the book. Um, but the, the plot is uh, deals with uh, someone who's a narc and he's, um, he's spying on these uh, drug fiends, but he's reporting to the drug agency uh, under a completely different identity, obviously. And he has this uh, device called a scramble suit, which makes it so that nobody, none of his superiors can see his face at all because it's uh, it's like this um, weird amalgam of a bunch of different faces. And what happens is he has these two different identities and he's also taking the drug that uh, he's supposed to be taking along, you know, this gets called substance D as a kind of amphetamine, uh, obviously, but the effect of it is that it actually splits the consciousness so that when he starts uh, to go over his material that he's recorded and he sees himself on the screen, he can no longer identify himself as himself. So as a spy, having split <clears throat> into two assumed identities, uh, he's actually, uh, literally, this is happening in his mind. And so um, something that's interesting is that uh, Dick had done a lot of research into bicamerality, the idea of the split brain. You probably heard of the left brain and the right brain. Um, so there's experiments that have been done where a person who has a severed corpus callosum, which is in the middle of your brain, and it allows the left and right hemispheres to communicate with each other and merge the two minds in order to have a coherent um, perceptual experience um, and because each hemisphere controls one eye and, and it's, uh, it's actually flipped where the left is connected to your right eye and your right hemisphere is connected to your left eye so if you cover say your left eye right and you look at a picture and you talk to somebody who's got a severed corpus callosum you're only talking to the left hemisphere, weirdly enough. So I wish I could remember the details of the experiments better, but they would do things like show them pictures and ask them to pick out objects, like what object doesn't belong here or something, or you know, look at this picture and come up with a narrative of what's happening. Um, they'll get completely different answers based on which hemisphere they're talking to at the time. So it kind of proves that we have like two distinct selves. In the late 70s, I want to say 78, but I could be wrong, um, Julian James came out with a rather notorious, very interesting book that put forward the thesis that um, what we think of as consciousness uh, 
emerged in history um, probably sometime after the Bronze Age collapse, um, maybe a little bit later. It definitely wasn't there uh, when the Homeric epics were constructed, especially the Iliad. But um, he thinks that ancient man experienced his right brain as an auditory hallucination of the voice of God or gods. And when bicamerality ended and the two hemispheres merged, we lost the voice of God. Basically at the time everyone was a functional schizophrenic. So it's interesting that PKD with his interest in schizophrenia um, and splitting would uh, apply this here in his books. Because you know amphetamine psychosis is uh, functionally not too different from schizophrenia. It's just not a permanent condition. And Dick probably was experiencing some amphetamine psychosis in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get too far off on, in the weeds about bicamerality, although I will note that uh, Ian McGilchrist, uh, a, a neuro, I believe he's a neurosurgeon, at least a neuroscientist, has kind of revived this idea of bicamerality, although he reverses James's argument and said actually what happens is over time and the development of civilization, the two hemispheres, not only do they go their separate way, um, but the left becomes more dominant. And that explains things like scientism and uh, kind of modern atomistic way of looking at things, whereas the right brain is more holistic and so on. But anyway, these are kind of at play in Scanner. And another thing that occurred to me is that uh, this thing where he's watching himself on the screen as a different identity. So another science fictional element of Scanner Darkly is that his recordings are 3D images. They're like 3D cameras that he uses. Um, and then they're later reviewed by himself and his superiors. And when they are, he can't tell that he is Bob Arctor on the screen. Uh, his narc name is, uh, I forget now actually, but uh, at any rate, I was uh, kind of thinking about how this kind of look, looks forward to the social media era which we have a, an adopted identity which takes place on a screen. And it's not that we can't literally identify ourselves, but we definitely have a, a sense of being two different people. At least I do. You know, online I try to make myself seem more interesting than I actually am. But in real life, I tend to try to make myself seem less interesting than I am. Just because I don't want I don't really want the attention from most people. The next book I read was The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, the last new book of Dix to be published while he was still alive. It's the conclusion of the so-called Vallis Trilogy, which is comprised by Vallis, the Divine Invasion and Transmigration. 
I think Valis is definitely the best. Uh, Divine Invasion probably the weakest, and Transmigration pretty much exactly in the middle, I would say. Um, I think it's good. I don't know if I would include it in his essential books, maybe just kind of hovering at the margin of the books, I would say you you really ought to read, um, probably only if you've already read his other major books and if you're a confirmed PKD fan. Um, it's definitely the most in the vein of strict realism um, since probably Confessions of a Crap Artist, which I think was the last straight realistic novel that he wrote. He spent the 50s trying his damnedest to write uh, non-science fiction realistic novels and failed at getting any of them published until Crap Artist was published in the mid-70s via the influence of a friend of his, Paul Williams, who founded Crawdaddy magazine. But I'd actually say the 70s work constitutes something of a synthesis of the science fiction period and his for many years unpublished mainstream fiction and like Scanner for instance is largely a realistic novel it's just got these few sci-fi touches and I didn't know this until recently but uh, a lot of these were the sci-fi elements were influenced and I think the scramble suit was even invented by Judy Del Rey, who was the wife of uh, science fiction writer Lester Del Rey, and she was the head of Del Rey Books, um, the famous sci-fi uh, imprint. It appears Dick wanted this to be another straight fiction. Um, but I think it's very successful for the same reasons that Crap Artist is the best of his mainstream novels, because Crap Artist actually has some sci-fi elements here and there. Very slight. There's a UFO cult in the book, um, and the, uh, the character Jack uh, Isidore, uh, the titular Crap Artist, is, uh, has a panoply of uh, kind of weird interests, some of which are sort of science fictional. He's interested in like 14 phenomena and things like that. Um, and Scanner also benefits by having these like slight science fictional elements. Transmigration is largely a straight ahead uh, realistic novel. However, there's some supernatural stuff having to do with seances and the, uh, the the event referred to in the title, the transmigration, which I won't really talk about because kind of the end, it's kind of the climax of the book. Um, but th this book deals with um, it's based on. Dick's friendship with the Episcopalian Bishop uh, James Pike I always want to say Albert Pike when I say James Pike Albert Pike was of course the Confederate General and influential Freemason and author of uh, Morals and Dogma but uh, James Pike was um, a pretty controversial uh, Episcopalian Bishop in the 60s uh, he was a very progressive uh, friend of uh, Martin Luther King, uh, an advocate of allowing women to be priests and a number of other progressive causes. He was a very learned man, apparently, and uh, 
narrowly escaped a, a heresy trial in the 60s and um, his death is rather interesting he went on a little pilgrimage to Israel and wandered the desert with uh, his I think it was just his girlfriend at the time um, in the area near Qumran where a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and the whole thing is like a comedy of errors everything that happened was exactly the wrong thing uh, they went out in the desert with uh, only like some soda and not enough water uh, they had car trouble went walking in the wrong direction they split up uh, the woman found eventually some help uh, Pike, instead of staying where he was and waiting for her, started walking as well, again in the wrong direction, tried to hike up a cliff, and I think he fell um, and eventually died out there. By the time they found him, he was, by the time she came back with help and they were able to locate him, he was dead. So, um, one of many, like, disturbing deaths uh, in Philip K. Dick's life, and uh, along with uh, the dissolved marriages and his drug problems uh, Dick was dealing with some heavy shit in the 70s and uh, the book is told from the perspective of a woman named Angel Archer and Dick was kind of making up for a lifetime of uh, having nothing but uh, almost nothing but these uh, dreadful bitches as women characters and uh, trying to put a, a sympathetic woman's perspective out there and he almost succeeds the supernatural element or potentially supernatural element comes in the form of a seance that Pike uh, undertakes in order to contact his dead son who had been a suicide But there's an ambiguity about whether this is uh, something that's real or not. So there's also a character that's uh, very obviously directly based on Alan Watts, which I think is quite successful. Even if I didn't know this, I might be able to guess that that was Alan Watts. I think Dick does a pretty good job here of, uh, of imitating him. But it's interesting how these books uh, of the so-called Valis trilogy relate to each other. Uh, this book has a fictionalized version of James Pike, who's, who is Timothy Archer, whereas Vallis directly refers to Bishop Pike. So it's clear that they, these two books don't take place in the same reality. One is not a sequel to the other. They don't have overlapping characters, but they have, an over, they have a common source character. Um, none of these books are the same either in terms of genre or in terms of overlapping um, worlds really although there's uh, it's indicated um, there's a reference to the Vallis film in the Divine Invasion so there's an indication that the Divine Invasion which is more in the strictly in the vein of science fiction or science fantasy perhaps um, that it's the future of the world of Valis, but otherwise there's 
not a whole lot of overlap between the books. There's thematic overlap, but then there's thematic overlap in a great deal of Dick's work. Um, rather than think about the Vallis trilogy, I prefer to think about how these late novels, beginning with A Scanner Darkly actually, um, start to integrate his uh, mystical experiences of 2374. Uh, which Scanner actually has a couple of distinct references to. If you've read um, about his experience, you'll be able to identify them. Um, what kind of disrupts the notion of a coherent Vallis trilogy, as well as another book called Radio Free Albumoth, uh, which I'm in the middle of now. It's kind of interesting because it's like a twin version of Vallis. They're based on the same events, but they are two kind of different takes on them. Um, I know that that one was written before Vallis, and he kind of incorporated the ideas from it uh, about a satellite uh, a satellite named Vallis communicating with somebody. Uh, and that was kind of worked into Vallis as the film version within the book. Um, so we have five novels, actually, that have this distinct relation to um, Dick's uh, religious concerns during this period. So another book that I read is called The Divine Madness of Philip K. Dick um, by, who is it by? Let me see here. Kyle Arnold. And I had never heard of this before. So I had no expectations about it. Um, I just happened to come across it. It's actually pretty good. Um, I was somewhat skeptical about it uh, at first because this is a book that looks at, uh, well, it looks directly at Dick's mental illness um, and looks at his life and work from a clinical perspective. The reason I had skepticism about that is I really don't like reductive psychological readings of literature and it's there were signs early on that there was going to be some of that where it was going to reduce his stories and the meaning of them to psychological problems that he had um, either rooted in his childhood or things that he was undergoing at the time there's some touches of this there's a he looks at faith of our fathers and connects this, um, to me, probably the most disturbing and direct uh, expression of Dick's Gnosticism. And he sort of says that this might have something to do with the anxiety he was feeling about being uh, investigated by the IRS because he had uh, participated in a writer's tax protest um, regarding the Vietnam War. Basically, they signed a letter saying they weren't, weren't going to pay any taxes. Uh, to protest Vietnam and I thought okay well that's just way too reductive but thankfully there's not a whole lot of that um, I thought the book was uh, overall generally quite good it had uh, some really fascinating information about um, his experiences in childhood which I hadn't heard of before or maybe I'd forgotten because I did read the Lawrence Sutton Divine Invasions book, which is probably the most available um, comprehensive Dick biography, um, but that was 
12 years ago, more maybe, um, since I read it. But at any rate, um, it's really hard to overestimate the impact of Dick's birth trauma, um, so to speak, or birth and infancy trauma, if you like, um, on the development of him psychologically and on his work. Um, as you may know, he was born prematurely, I want to say something like six weeks prematurely, and he was a twin. He had a twin sister. Both of them were quite um, weak and undernourished when they were born, and um, they were in such bad conditions that they had to be taken to, uh, they were in Chicago at the time, and had to be taken to, I believe, the world's first or America's first um, premature infant ward. It's a brand new thing um, because they were very close to death. And in fact, his sister Jane did die on the way there. And the reaction of his mother was uh, a pretty disturbing one regarding um, Dick. Um, she basically directly told him that he ate all the food. She did not produce enough breast milk for them. And so, uh, in not quite so many words, she told him that it was his fault that she died. And when she was buried, they had a double tombstone. His name was already on it with his sister Jane. So this had a really profound effect on his psyche. He had a number, I mean, there are, there are other things. There was some neglect going on there. He was kept from his father. Um, his mother was not particularly attentive. Um, he developed certain neuroses and problems psychologically throughout his life, but and by his account, he believed his mother was sending him die messages, sort of psychically. This is something that reverberates throughout his work. Recall that uh, that Umberto Rossi book explores ontological uncertainty. And that's the psychological, of course, he means it um, ontologically, also epistemologically, um, but there's a psychological dimension as well. Um, and also there's a twin theme that goes throughout his work. And he becomes very interested in Jung's idea of the anima and a bunch of other Jungian concepts. But that's a particularly resonant one for him because Dick literally had a female half that was inaccessible. But he imagined her as a child, or maybe he was actually visited by her spirit. Um, but she was essentially his imaginary friend as a kid, and he imagined her doing certain things that he was not brave or confident enough to do, and also that she would goad him into doing things that he could not otherwise do. This is a theme that would go on throughout his life, where in certain circumstances in which he was found himself psychologically unable to do certain things, when he would have a breakdown, 
he would have assistance from some supernatural being. Um, in the later, in the 70s, amidst uh, many of his mystical experiences, his friend, uh, Bishop James Pike, he believed was sort of in his head and kind of occupying him mentally and causing him to change his habits for the better, dressing well, uh, writing his publisher and asking if they owed him any back money. And in fact, turns out they did. Things like that. And of course, the whole Vallis pink light and the information he was given that saved his son Christopher and so on. There's many examples of divine assistance aiding him in, in, the, in the midst of his psychological breakdowns. So this book has a lot of details about that kind of stuff, um, but it's the stance it takes on it is kind of, it is definitely a warts and all picture. It's very hard reading uh, any PKD bio if you are an admirer of his because he's definitely a very, very flawed person. Um, and it's hard to really fully accept his accounts of his mystical or spiritual experiences when you know that he was a kind of a compulsive liar or at least exaggerator he would also he would often tell multiple versions of the same event uh, his accounting of things seemed to change depending on who he was talking to and I doubt that it was this was something that he was really conscious of it was more there, there was maybe a kind of a sense that he had to please people, um, but it may be that just reality was a little bit slippery for PKD, and that's how he experienced it. But although this is a clinical account, so the, the book doesn't really say his experiences were real, they were not real. It doesn't really diagnose him because, frankly, he, he says that there's actually not, although his experiences bear a lot of similarities to schizophrenia, there's not enough to make a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia. Now, he probably had at certain times amphetamine psychosis because he was using a lot of amphetamines that this was driving his, um, his writing. I was driving his writing throughout the 60s and in the early 70s when he wasn't really writing fiction that much, he was mainly like hanging out with other druggies and doing, you know, epic doses of amphetamine. Still, this is when he, he got into a lot of paranoid, you know, that, that instead of creating stories on the page, he was creating them in his life, I think. Um, but it, uh, you know, it doesn't say that his re religious experiences are real, but it doesn't dismiss them as madness either. It's, it shows them as meaningful within the context of his life. That's what's interesting about it. And, you know, what I love about reading about his strange experiences is that essentially there's no one explanation that you can slap onto his life without have, having some fact or element stick out unaccounted for. So he sort of scrambles our categories. This is actually the case with a lot of his fiction as well. No one explanation or interpretation actually works without leaving something out. Some contradiction remains left.
So I'd actually like to read a little excerpt from that book that I thought was uh, very revealing. Uh, it's it's pretty funny and, and kind of sad, too, um, just like a lot of his fiction. So let's see. Here we go. Dick attended psychotherapy sessions religiously and says that they were helpful. Perhaps his life would have been even more painful without them. Nevertheless, it is hard to count any of Dick's long courses of therapy as successful. Indeed, a psychotherapist working with him would face a nearly insurmountable task. Imagine he walks into your consulting room. If you are a Freudian psychoanalyst, as some of Dick's therapists were, you might ask Dick to free associate. Big mistake. Speaking rapidly, Dick spins out stories about his life that are a mixture of fact and fiction. He free associates to books, theories, and fictional characters that may or may not be relevant. You try to get a clear you try to get clear on what is going on. Try to see through the fabrications, but you can't. You are dealing with Philip K. Dick. He is familiar with all of your therapeutic procedures and outsmarts all of them. If you challenge his intellectual defenses, he pretends to agree with you and presents brilliant pieces of self-analysis that later turn out to be spurious. Eventually, you decide that it is fruitless to try and keep up with the racing twists and turns of Dick's intellect, and you fall back on brute force. You start giving Dick orders. Stop smoking dope. Eat better. Stop picking girlfriends that are bad for you. Clean up your apartment. Dick tries to follow your directives, but something is missing. He stops using drugs for a few months, but then buys some from the housekeeper he hired to clean his apartment. He pays lip service to selecting more suitable partners, but keeps ending up in unhealthy relationships. He tells you he has improved his diet, and when you ask for specifics, he says that he is dating a drug addict who cooks fantastic veggie burgers. Does he just not get it? Or is he toying with you? You wonder how serious Dick is about therapy, and tell him that it does not seem to be helping him. Despondent, Dick complains that you are one of those people in his life who is going to abandon him. You are trapped. You have become another character in a Philip K. Dick story. Checkmate. So you can see PKD was a pretty difficult and damaged person. And that's maybe par for the course for great artists. I'm sure you can listen to the Art of Darkness episode for a lot more on that. But what I like about the divine madness of Philip K. Dick is that although it roots or contextualizes his religious experiences in terms of his mental illness and trauma and other personal problems. It doesn't merely dismiss him as crazy. Um, it doesn't call them religiously authentic either because that would be beyond the scope of the book. I just like to say that uh, I find that I believe that Philip K. Dick was some kind of genuine prophet or mystic, but of a, a unique contemporary sort, usually we're used to two categories of prophet, a true prophet and a false prophet. 
what we could perhaps call fallible prophet. As I say, he was in some sense a broken man. But it makes me think of the Leonard Cohen line, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that's very much the case with Philip K. Dick. Now I want to end the PKD readings um, with a few of the short stories. I read a whole bunch of short stories, read and reread. Um, I was confirmed in my opinion that Faith of Our Fathers is his masterpiece in terms of, our, of uh, short stories. I don't really get into that one um, except to say that it's the most paranoid and disturbing of his Gnostic visions and uh, another story is I was only slightly surprised to realize what a masterpiece second variety is and what's surprising about it is not how great the story is but how early on it comes I want to say it's in like 54 or 55 he was writing publishing short stories I think as early as 53 I could be wrong so we're basically two three years into his his writing career and I might say that second variety is number two and if I'm ranking his his great short stories um, if you don't know um, it takes place on a wasteland, post-apocalyptic earth, very familiar setting for many of his stories, um, in which there has been a continuing war between Russia, Soviet Russia, and the UN. Kind of interesting, it's not just America and the Soviet Union, but uh, rather under the auspices of, of the UN. And there's this gray, ashy, blasted landscape, very evocative. And the war is now being continued via machines which have begun to develop new iterations of themselves which imitate other forms, different kinds of soldiers and so on it's part of PKD's vision of a particular kind of AI sentient machines who carry on a kind of Darwinistic struggle in the mechanical realm <clears throat> hey cat sorry about that I had to kick the cat out of here. She knows she's not supposed to be in this room. And I had the door closed, but she pushed it open like a raptor in Jurassic Park. Anyway, there's a few short stories uh, early on that are in this vein, another great one is called Autofac. One that I don't really hear anybody talk about is called The Preserving Machine. Um, and I wanted to talk about that just a moment because I have kind of an, I think, an interesting reading 
uh, what's going on there. Um, the idea, and it's not a great story in terms of uh, narrative or character, it's, but it belongs to this type of science fiction story that's really good because it's driven by an interesting idea. Um, and it isn't any much more than a, kind of a sketch of that idea. It involves a scientist named Doc Labyrinth, which is a great name. I kind of wish that there were more Doc Labyrinth stories. Um, but what he does is to take, and his concern is that somehow the great works of classical music, the compositions will be lost because of some civilizational catastrophe that would get rid of the recordings and the uh, sheet music or any remnant uh, that these great symphonies and so on ever existed would be gone because of uh, the erasure of the media themselves and so what he decides to do is to create uh, living beings, uh, animals basically, um, that have the compositions somehow encoded in them. The reasoning is that animals will fight for their survival, right? They wouldn't passively be wiped out. And then what happens is after a short time, he's able to take these little creatures that he's created and extract after a later time the compositions and play them. What, ha what has happened is they've become distorted and grotesque. So the idea here uh, being, I think, is that when you plug these perfect works of art into the living realm of competition and nature red in tooth and claw it has a distorting effect on the work of art so obviously we're dealing with a um, strictly divided realm between the ideal world of art and the messy world of life. It's kind of a platonic dualism, which is fairly common for PKD's work. Um, but I do wonder also if there's not a commentary on his anxiety um, as a science fiction writer. Of course, he tried to be a respected mainstream writer and failed at that and early on he was writing science fiction although he loved science fiction he was in a way only writing it and writing so much of it to pay the bills those are the only stories of his that sold money and so his art so to speak in that area was like the distorted music it contained his ideals but it was uh not aesthetic perfection because of its need to compete in the Darwinian marketplace. 
So anyway, I thought that was an, an interesting story in that uh, regard. Now, another story that I was quite impressed by upon rereading, and I have another kind of meta reading of it as well, was a very late story, one of his last that he published. I want to say it was in 1980 or 81, called I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon. Now, The Preserving Machine was a mid-50s story, so we're kind of at the beginning of his career. I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon is another one that I think reflects back on a lifetime of writing the kind of fiction that he wrote. You know, the paranoid, Gnostic, reality breakdown kind of fiction that he's famous for. And it's such a clever idea in this story, and it's so psychologically acute. I, re I really think it's PKD at his best. So there's a man on a ship traveling across the galaxy on a ship on a journey that will take 10 years to get to this planet where he's going to live. And very shortly into the journey, something happens that malfunctions. He's in cryonic sleep. He's supposed to sleep through the entire journey so that it doesn't actually subjectively take him 10 years. And due to this accident, he partially wakes up. He's not able to get up and be move around or anything like that. But his mind is awake. And so what the computer on that runs the ship decides is that he's going to need to feed this guy some sort of sensory experience, basically to make him dream, kind of waking dream, or else he's going to go mad. He needs some kind of input. So he decides to sort of weave these scenarios out of the man's own memories. And what happens is he tries to give him happy memories, right? But they keep turning into traumatic memories. And he keeps discovering that there's something false about them. And they sort of collapse one after the other. Um, and it's definitely like a, a recovered memory kind of psychiatric situation where he's going back into early childhood and finding out you know this primal trauma that gave him this guilt complex that he has has to do with uh, him helping a cat kill a spider and especially memories um, dealing with an ex-wife that he was happy with until their relationship fell apart but anyway the computer decides it has to directly address the guy and say hey I need to give you something to last the rest of the trip so why don't you tell me what you want the most in the world and we can put you back to sleep and you can dream that And the guy says, 
Well, what I want is to be there already, to have my journey be over. Computer says, great, let's give you that. But this turns out to be another scenario that collapses because the man is chronically incapable of being happy. And his unhappiness is somehow tied into his sense that things are not real. What the computer decides to do is to contact this ex-wife the man is in love with. And he's able by chance to get her there to the planet to be waiting for him when he arrives for real. Because he's come to understand the extent of this man's unhappiness. So after 10 years of harrowing psychological torment, the man steps off the ship for real. And he meets this ex-wife who's agreed because she actually still loves him as in a situation where she wants to get back together with him. And they do reunite and it seems to be going okay until he casually confesses to her that he doesn't believe in the reality of anything around him. The planet is not real. She is not real. In fact, he can stick his arm right through the wall because it's not real. He says, look. But of course he's not doing that. It's a real wall. The man has completely lost his ability to accept reality when he sees it. So I think maybe you can guess why I see this as like a meta story. Because Philip K. Dick's career was built on a endless breakdowns of reality. For the most part, I think this is part of a desire to grasp what is really real. That's the grail quest. That is the religious journey. But on the other hand, might it not be its own kind of insanity? If you have this innate skepticism, the sense of the world not being real, this inability to accept what may be transitory as being unreal, which is the platonic position as well, would it in a sense poison you and render you unable to accept the real were you to meet it? Maybe reality is an art, a verb and not a noun.